Welcome to Sundays at Cafe Tabac, the podcast. Hi, I'm Wanda Costa. Hi, I'm Karen Song. We're the filmmakers of the documentary feature film project of the same name that's still in progress. This podcast series is an extension of our film's mission to affirm and extol the courage, vision, strength, and joy in our LGBTQ community through the preservation and sharing of our personal stories and the collective histories we live through and change. We often discuss whether it is still necessary to come out today, since there is a level of acceptance and visibility that did not exist in the past with many rights won for our community. We also discuss coming out as a celebratory and self-empowering moment in one's life. But we want to also acknowledge that for many, it is still very difficult and unsafe to do so. For all of these reasons, we want to emphasize why we do this podcast, because we believe these stories were as timely then as they are now. We believe in the importance of telling and preserving our personal stories and our collective histories as forms of visibility and activism and as sources for empowerment and inspiration. In this episode, we welcome Javier Peral, an internationally known sound stylist, music producer, and music director, renowned for his intrinsic approach to sound design. He is one of the most sought after names for fashion show soundtracks, as well as creating music for art videos, performance, and film. Born and raised in Madrid, Javier has been a fixture on the music scene since arriving in New York City in the early 1990s, where he was a DJ at the beloved East Village queer space, Wonderbar. In this episode, Javier brings us to his teen years in Madrid, where he discovers his sexuality, goes to his first gay club, gets outed by his mom, and much more. This podcast episode was recorded at the Newsstand Studios at 1 Rockefeller Plaza in New York City. Now let's listen to Javier Peral. I came out to myself first because I think that's very important um, to acknowledge without prejudice that you are gay. In those days, the word gay wasn't something that um, really reflected the whole uh, spectrum of gay people. But in those days, being gay was a strange label. I remember we used to drive by the gay club, which was the only cabarets that were openly gay because they had a drag show. And it had a neon on the on the front door that had like this very cartoonish face of a drag queen. It was called the gay club. So to me, gay equal drag queens in those days. So I started saying that when I was like maybe 11. So that was my image because I'm talking about the late seventies or mid seventies. We didn't really have any examples of homosexual people where deviants and, uh, at least in Spain, I mean, there was still a law that you could go to jail. You could get picked up at a raid. There was La Ley de Maleantes. It, it was a really kind of like gray spectrum where like if you were in the middle of the street and, uh, the police thought that you were doing something strange. They can take you to jail. It is post-Franco days, so many of those laws continue after. Slowly, I started seeing other examples, and one was this news uh, kiosk where they would sell books and magazines and newspapers. They had a few books on the like in one of the windows, and one was a paperback of a book called. Los homosexuales, 
español. Uh, and he had a photo of like two guys that were like kind of hot, staring at each other's eyes, and they had like tight jeans and all that, all that. And I was like, huh, that's different. <laughs> so I really wanted to buy it. I never brought myself to. It was right next to high school, so I never brought myself to. Uh, but I started kind of like being more aware that there were other types of homosexuales or personas gay. Um, I was swimming in a small swimming club that functioned summer, winter, because it had a, an indoors Olympic swimming pool. And funny enough, that swimming pool became later like a gay cruising hangout place in the summer. And that kind of added the new element of like desire and being desired and being able to like awaken desire in other people, which to me was kind of a revelation. And I decided that it was completely fine and that there was like an awakening of sexuality. And so I was like, I want this, you know, there's nothing wrong with this in my head. This, this is great. This is what I want to be. And to me, to discover that was like, like I could only think of that. And I would go and swim at lunchtime. It wasn't far from my school. And, you know, from my parents was such a great idea. I was like, oh, yeah, go swimming. So that led to started going out with people that I met there. That took me to the first gay club when I was 16. You know, started going and meeting people. And I was living with my parents, so I was sharing obviously the home phone number. So voices starting to call this number. Um, so that also created some sort of red flags. This mixed in with a change in habits and a change in going out and arriving late and past my curfew and all this change in clothes because the first time that I went to a, a gay bar, I was wearing... 16 year old clothes, you know, I didn't have no clue what I was putting on together. <laughs> and I arrived and I see all these stylish kids, some of them flamboyant, some of them not. It was the early 80s, they were wearing giant shoulder pads. And, and I am like with my glasses because I have glasses at the time, like no clue. So <laughs> luckily, my brothers <laughs> were both stylish. So I started borrowing their clothes. Those were things that my parents probably were picking up. Coming out to my parents was a different story. It was by age 18 that I already had a really big group of friends. And I was going out and I had, by then, like, you know, a few boyfriends. And that I met Rafael, who was a um, film editor. Lived in New York and who was, like, super sophisticated and fun and great. And we had a few months relationship. I was very young. I was only 18. and He was 31 or something. So he wrote me a letter and I received the letter. It was kind of like a breakup, but very sweet. He was a smart guy. He didn't write anything terrible. Kept it in my pocket. And that night I got drunk because that's what we did in the summer in Efkarai. And I got really, actually really drunk. And I arrived home and I just went to bed with my clothes on and my mom was furious because she heard me. And so she took off my clothes and put them in the washer. And she always had this habit to like pull things from the pockets. So nothing was 
found the letter. She kept the letter for months, which was kind of amazing in a way, until one day Rafael called me. We were in Madrid at the time, and I was at home, and my mom challenged Rafael to, who are you and what do you have to do with my kid? And why are you calling him? And I know the letter that you wrote him and what's going on. So Rafael, who was, like I said, was a really nice and uh, smart guy, praised me and said, you have a wonderful son. He's incredible. He's amazing. Uh, he's obviously young and I'm older, but you have nothing to fear about your kid. Your kid is incredible. Love him. Help him. And basically, that's what he says. So that night I arrived home, I don't know where I was coming from, but uh, it was after dinner and my mom served me dinner in the kitchen instead of the dining room, which was weird, and closed the door. And she confronted me. It was very solemn. And by then my friends, my group of friends had advised me, if you ever get in that situation when your parents are like, are you gay? Or you are gay? Or question you anything, stand up. Just say yes and say, so what? And I took courage out of nowhere. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Uh, and I just told my mom that, yeah, it was the truth. And of course she became very like, oh, it's una cruz que me ha mandado el señor. as uh, like the Catholic guilt, like she's got a, carry a cross and all this. And I'm like, mom, please don't be so dramatic. <laughs> uh, we just went on for what it seemed to be hours. I know they went to see their priest in the church that they would go to mass. And he said the same thing that I said. Apparently he was quite modern and open-minded. It took a few months to solidify this whole coming out. I could see her, she was sad and she was a little depressed. And sometimes in the morning she would wake me up in my, in my room and ask me if I had changed, if there was any possibility of change. And I said, no, mom, this is, this is what it is. My mom's behavior from the moment of the letter to the phone call was a little hostile. She was angry and everything was very exacerbated and like, and like, you know, dramatic. In my 20s, Madrid was La Movida and Pedro Almodovar and nothing like any movie of Pedro Almodovar. That's exactly what Madrid was and we had so much fun. And I was very reckless and I did a lot of things that kind of upset my parents sometimes. But I would say a month, a month and a half after the phone call, my mom became this very protective, very loving, very warm mother and continued that for the rest of her life. And she was always like, I could sense that there was a change and she embraced me and she adored me. And and it was, sorry, I'm getting a little emotional now. But the one thing that it was sweet in that situation was that what she was afraid of is that other people could harm me. Her homophobia wasn't so much about homophobic feelings, homophobic tendencies towards gay people as like 
that homophobia informed her that other people could do harm to me. That's what she feared. Still, she always was uh, this loving, protective person. And she would like wave at me when I was leaving, going out at night or like afternoon and wave through the window, give me a little extra cash. If my father wasn't that generous that day, she became this really uh, attached mother. When I started going out to gay clubs, it was like the era of the new romantics, like Visage and the Human League and Ultra Box and all this, or Spandau Ballet, with like a lot of like pirate ruffles, scarves, and skirts even, and like I had to wash them. And I got a bunch of them that a friend of mine brought from London, from Portobello Market. So my mom <laughs> had to wash them, and she was always very embarrassed to. Uh, dry them because we had a you know lines clothes right in Spain there's no dryers so she would flip them and so the neighbors <laughs> wouldn't see the 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 clothes have ruffles have the shirts have ruffles and then she was like well maybe I can say they're mine and instead of yours and she started to like some of them like I like the black one better than the white one <laughs> the first guy that I met at the pool. I don't know, a married guy, older than me. I had a big Speedo to swim because it was one of those like older 70s, kind of like wide leg. And so he bought me a new one, more slim and like narrow on the, you know, on the hips with a flower pattern. And um, that I didn't show my mother and I had to wash my, myself and dry it myself because it was quite provocative. My father had a bunch of suits from the 60s that they wouldn't fit him anymore in ties from my grandfather that were too skinny. So I asked my parents, hey, do you need this? And they're like, uh, what are you going to do with this? He's like, I'm going to start wearing this. And they were like, why? Where are you going with this? I'm like, I don't know. It's this thing. It's like, it's, the, it's what kids are wearing now. And they were like, look at me like, how do you know this? <laughs> I found out later that my father knew as well. He actually never confronted me. Um, and unfortunately, he died when I was 24, so I never discussed this with him. Great thing about coming out and starting to meet other, older peers, because I said before that there was no examples. And in the early 80s, there weren't that many examples either. I mean, if you remember, I don't even know if Elton John was out or Freddie Mercury wasn't either. And many, many stars, like Rock Hudson, wasn't out. He only came out when he became ill with AIDS. There was really no examples for us. So to have a community that embraced me, and not just sexually, because many of my friends, we became friends, and many of them were nine, ten years older than me. They were very protective, and they were also very encouraging in giving you all their knowledge. So they're like, you need to read... Tennessee Williams' memoirs, they're great. Or you need to start reading uh, Margaret Yulsenar's memoirs of Hating. Like, I remember all these books that was like, do you know about Yukio Mishima? I'm like, no. Okay, start reading this. They would take me to see Pasolini and Visconti and Truffaut. It was like this knowledge that was transferred from 
these guys that in reality is like, listen, you're going to be in a world where like some queens are not going to be that nice to you. And if you go to a dinner party, you need to know all this. It was a very caring act on their behalf. It was like, do you know who this artist is? No, let's go and see this. And it wasn't like in, with any like patronizing or no, it was just like to expose you to like, you know, pass on information. It was great. I discovered Warhol, Maple Thorpe. I met artists. It was just a great amount of knowledge that for a 20 or a 19 year old felt like, wow, this is, this is the world. This is a, a lot more interesting. When I moved to New York, I started working at a, at a clothing store, Camouflage, in Chelsea, which was like one of the most revered men's work store in, in New York City, a small men's work store. And one of the owners, Gene Chase, who unfortunately died of AIDS in 96, took me under his wing. And he, he would take me out to jazz clubs and plays and performances and, and all this. I was perhaps 29, 28. But um, maybe he saw me like, you know, a day on the headlights in New York. And it was probably my second job in the city. So, and he was the same, this, this very uh, caring, thoughtful, older guy. He was, I think he was like twice my age, if not more. Uh, he and Robert Richards, another great older uh, character of, of New York, who was an illustrator and, and took me to see um, great performances. They were enjoying their moment. They were also enjoying taking me and wowing me with this all this knowledge. I feel there was there was a generation of gay elders. AIDS sort of took so many away that a lot of that was lost. I remember, like in the eighties, there was uh, it was a much more crossover from like older to younger. In my group of friends, someone could be ten years older than me or twelve years older than me. And there was not an issue. I don't think we ever really thought of the possibility of getting married. Right after I came out, uh, there were people already saying, it's like, oh, this is my husband. And, and I was I'm like, talking about like even 30 years before gay marriage. And, and we were always kind of like, ew. <laughs> you know, like, no, it's your boyfriend, not your husband. Like saying my husband meant something else that obviously... It wasn't, it wasn't real because, you know, marriage didn't exist. And the implication was kind of like a little too heavy. For some reason, we thought we were freer or special. And we didn't need marriage. My dating experience was kind of a disaster, too. Because I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't last in any relationship. And I blame myself for a lot of it. But marriage and meeting Ross changed my my look, my perspective and love, my perspective and being with someone for hopefully the rest of my life. I am right now living with my husband, Ross, in the North Caspial area in Durham, in our house, escaping COVID. My husband and I have been married for nine years, a little, a little bit over nine years. We got married in Spain. Two weeks after it was announced that New York was passing uh, same-sex marriages, we got married in my hometown in La Rioja with all my family and his family and a bunch of friends. And it was like, 
it's it's a common Spanish uh, description, una boda gitana, because gypsy weddings usually take over a whole weekend or a few days of celebration. And I was went from a Wednesday night to a Sunday morning. So it was a long, long, long wedding with a lot of events and a lot of fun. They met briefly. My mom had Alzheimer's. And so the last few years of her life, uh, there was a decline. She didn't make it to the wedding. She died a year before. So Ross kind of met her in her last year. She was at a facility or a residence. And so I introduced, I, I brought Ross with me. We went out to the garden and they sat together. And she was in a, in a wheelchair by then. And so she kind of like looked to the side and she said in in very clear Spanish, ¿Quién es este? <laughs> Who is this? I introduced, this is Ross. He lives with me in New York. I didn't say anything else. She grabbed his hand and sat there without saying much. And at that point, my brother arrived uh, and saw that, and it was like this moment. She gave the approval to Ross, yeah, in that moment. Thank you for listening. For more, subscribe to Sundays at Cafe Tabac, the podcast. You can learn more about us and our film at cafetobacfilm.com and at Cafe Tabac Film on social media. Please share your thoughts with us on our social media. And if you have a coming out story you'd like to share for a possible feature here, reach out to us. Thanks for listening.